0: Welcome to Onscripts
1: Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy world.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, in this episode, uh, we're going to hear from Chris McKinney about the Tel Bernat Archaeological Project. And this one's really special to me because this is where I first met. It was at Tel Burna that I first met Chris back in 2012 when I uh, dug there for a week. Chris had already been involved in that project and he's still involved in it. Uh, it's a really interesting site and you'll get to hear his insights uh, about excavating there and about his experiences as a biblical scholar and as an archaeologist. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show this episode and uh, for all of you for listening thanks to those who support us financially we really appreciate uh, your help in making this podcast possible so you if you'd like to give to biblical world you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate and you'll find all the information you need there okay thanks so much for listening
0: Well, welcome to OnScript, The Biblical World. Today, uh, we've got Dr. Chris McKinney talking about the site of Tel Borna. And I'm uh, Dr. Kyle Keimer, so I'm going to be interviewing him. Uh, So, it's going to be a fun-filled podcast today. And before we really kind of dive into things, Chris, um, Tel Borna is a site that maybe some people are familiar with, maybe some are not familiar with. But can you tell us, right off the bat, why is this site significant? What's one extremely significant thing about this site? And I'll give you a few examples in case you just need a little time to think, right? Is it because of, say, a late Bronze Age cultic shrine? Is it because it's Judahite? Is it because you work there? I mean, what, what makes this site something that our listeners can kind of grasp onto as a bit of a, a teaser to whet their appetite?
1: Well, that's a hard question. Uh, I, I would say that if I think of the site, I think of its identity as biblical Libna. Uh, which is a Levitical town mentioned in the Bible. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua a few times. It's mentioned in the, the book of Kings. So I would say that the main connection as a person who is very interested in biblical history and biblical geography, and the first thing that really attracted to me to the site was its connection to the biblical data, and especially the connection with the this, this site being lo- the location of, of Libna. So to me, that's the, the most important angle, uh, but there are other angles that are also important as well. So if there's a main takeaway that you would get from our discussion is that Tel Borna is likely uh, biblical Libna, although we might save that discussion for a different day.
0: Okay, alright, so we're looking then at a site that we have mentioned in the biblical text, which is, which is always fun, and this is one of the big challenges in, in archaeology of how do we know which site we're actually working at? How do we you know, map it onto what the biblical text is telling us? And so, by way of kind of setting the context, can you just tell us a little bit more about the context of Tel Borna? Where is it located exactly? Um, and just a, a broad overview maybe of its main periods of occupation and how those might map onto to some of the, the biblical events.
1: Yeah, uh, happy to. So the site of Tel Borna, and actually the name itself, uh, is a Hebrew name. And this is one of the kind of the funny things that were introduced since the beginning of the modern of the modern state of Israel, as is many of the old names of the site were Hebraized. Um, the site uh, in Arabic is actually goes by a couple different names, but the main one is Tel Borna, uh, which actually refers to a kind of uh, Italian hat that was uh, very, very uh, popular in the uh, 18th and 19th century, which probably means that the name evolved over time. We have a kind of a late reflection of the name. So the name is actually Tel Bornat, which is like the the tell of the hat. Uh, and that probably is the, uh, because of the shape of the of the site, it kind of looks like a hat sit, seated on a, on a hill. And just as kind of an aside to this, um, it shares that same name with a very famous site in um in the West Bank, the site of so-called Joshua's Ebal altar on Mount Ebal, which is called uh which is called Kirbit Bernat, uh, or Bernetta, which is the same, which is the same same meaning. But our site is in the Shvela, a region that we've talked about in the past and a region we know well. Uh, it is the um, the area between the coastal plain in the west, where we have in the Old Testament or, or Hebrew Bible period, the, the Philistines at places like uh, Gaza and Ashkelon and, and Gath and Ekron and so on. Uh, and the Judahites living up in the hill country at places like Hebron and Bethlehem, and Tekoa and Jerusalem. Our site is actually situated directly on the border uh, between these uh, two entities, the kingdom of Judah, as it would become known in the divided kingdom from about 931 to 586 BC, and the Philistines. And one of the really important things that has come to light in the last uh, 20 years or so is that even though we talk about the, the Philistines as kind of being a, let's call it a, a nation state, they're actually a, a confederacy Of city-states that have perhaps some kind of cooperation between themselves, but they are really each their own entity, at least as far as we can tell. Uh, We only have information from the Bible and from Assyrian sources, and a very few number of sources from the uh, Philistines themselves describing this. But one of the really important details is that Gath, um, at least over the last 20 five years or so of excavations at Tel Asafi, a site some seven kilometers to the north of Tel Borna, has shown that this site is the biggest and most impressive and perhaps best fortified city in the entire southern Levant, at least during the 11th, 10th, and 9th century BC, or precisely during the time frame where uh, the kingdom of Judah, after the United Monarchy, begins to emerge and have some of this territorial control over the region. And so Tel Borna is a site situated in the Gouvrine Valley, or the Nahal Gouvrine, one of these east-west valleys of the Shvela, and it's smack dab in the middle between the biggest Philistine city-state of the period, again, between the 11th and the 9th century BC, and the most significant city in the Shephelah of Judah, Lachish, which is about seven kilometers to the south. And so what first attracted the excavators to come to this site uh, was that they wanted to understand, having excavated themselves for 20-some-odd years at Gath of the Philistines, they wanted to understand what a site on the border would look like between the Philistine cities, uh, especially Gath, and Judah, and so the the really the, the the driving force behind this project was to understand borders and to understand how those borders might be distinctive when we think of something that is very well demonstrated with Gath being this clearly Philistine city showing up in things like uh, pottery, but also even in the cooking methods that they would use, such as philistine hearths versus uh, to, to boons or ovens, uh, and, and even in the diet we see with the faunal, with, with the, the animal remains, how would that compare to not Hebron, which is difficult to, to identify, but difficult to excavate, but clearly a heartland site, site a site that's central to uh, the kingdom of Judah during the Old Testament period, but a site that's right on the border between the Philistines and the Judahites. And there's actually hints in the biblical text that this might be really an important detail. Uh, one text we can read in 2 Kings, uh, we read about how Libna, the site of Libna, revolted during the ninth century, during the reign of King Jehoram of Judah. Uh, and it doesn't really tell us why. It doesn't say because uh, the Philistines were nearby and they were pulled close to the Philistines or uh, anything like that. It just says they revolted. And so perhaps one of the reasons for the revolt is the proximity to the Philistines. And so if I were to sum it up uh, in one kind of sentence, I would to say that one of the main reasons why we went to the site is to try and figure out what the other side of the border, the Judahite side of the border, looked like in the, um, during the biblical period because we had spent a lot of time excavating at Philistine Gath.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, and you actually kind of jumped to my, my next question then, which was going to be, why did you guys go there? And so that's a great context there of, of looking at the the borders. And these, you know, when we talk about borders in the ancient world, in ancient Israel or the Near East in general, right, we really have to um, kind of, change the way we understand some of these things and define them based on our 21st century western thinking because we say border you know maybe we think of a wall with Mexico maybe we think of you know something other that's really um, solid and that is meant to keep people out and in antiquity we we know from many written sources and also from the archaeological materials that borders are far more porous they're far more fluid and they may delineate us versus them but there's a whole lot of other things going on. And so articulating what uh, is typical, if there is a typical, at a border site is a really interesting process. And I know at the site where I've been working, Kirbet Rai, is also on the border. The site of Beit Shemesh, which uh, Tel Aviv University had been working on, is on the border. And Tel Borna is on the border. And so we're, we're moving into a, a phase where we can really start to understand in a better way. How maybe some of these different people groups are working, and what the the purpose of of establishing some of these sites at the borders is. So I'm I'm glad you kind of brought that up and and touched on it a bit. Now, what um what draw you drew you sorry what drew you there personally? I know you've been there. They've been excavating for what ten years now eleven eleven years. Yeah,
1: we, the project started in 2009, and so I was a a student at Jerusalem University College, a, a graduate student in that time frame, And so actually in the summer of 2009 was the was when I f- participated in my first excavation at Telesafi Gath. And it just so happened to be that uh, some of the PhD students of Aaron Mayer, who had long participated in the Gath excavations by that point, uh, were branching out. Uh, they'd, had, uh, they'd, they'd had a lot of experience and they'd loved their excavations with, uh, with the Philistines, but they wanted to start their own project. And uh, the site of Tel Borna was a site that had been constantly thought of as a place that would be great to excavate. And so I remember uh, actually not even knowing uh, Itzik Shai, the, the director of Tel Borna, and I remember climbing up to the very top of the, the tell, and I was in my early 20s, and uh, just, you know, a week into my very first excavation, and them standing on the the casemate wall, and talking about what their projects were and their thoughts were, and and I said, man, this is really cool. And and then so over the course of that first excavation season at at Gath, this is uh, again 2009, I got some experience as uh, doing some registrar uh, work, you know, recording all of the the finds, and my good friend Amit Dagon, who was a who was also excavating at Safi for a number of years. Uh, We formed a really tight bond, and he also went over uh, for a few seasons to to Tel Borna and brought me with him. And uh, in fact, the only season I ever got to excavate with my wife, uh, which has always got a a special place in my heart, is in in 2010, where we excavated uh, outside of the wall at Tel Borna. And really interestingly, uh, we actually found, my wife and I, found uh, a layer that is associated with the ninth century destruction um, at Gath, but apparently also spilled over to the site of of Tel Borna. And so we immediately had this connection between these two sites that we had been excavating. And so that first year that I participated was was 2010, and that was really the first excavation season. Obviously we're in 2021. We weren't able to excavate in 2020, uh, but we're in the 10th or 11th season of of work there. And since then, the majority of the time, I have been uh, serving as a as a, an area supervisor for an area just to the west of the of the of the main upper tell. Bourneau has it's characterized by two main features. One is a upper tell, which is the hat looking thing. So if you're thinking of it as a uh, as a as a baseball cap, uh, the hat the hat part is the main tell which is a fortress which is built in the iron age too Uh, We're not sure exactly but at least so we're looking at yeah, probably ninth or eighth century It's 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 before the eighth century. It's 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 ninth century, but perhaps earlier We're not we're not sure yet And then the bill of the cap uh, of the baseball cap is uh, earlier actually and it dates to the late bronze age, which is actually lower on the western side now to, to put this in perspective, people might have in their mind something like Hot Soar, which has an upper city and a lower city. We're, no, we're not in Hot class. Uh, in fact, this is one of the things that uh, we always joke about is that everybody's site is the most important site in the world. Uh, and everybody starts off with, you know, these small research questions and they want to say, well, our site is small. But here are the reasons why it's significant. We're really trying to understand our site not as uh, the most important site in the in the in the in the region, but we do think it's an important part of the system. In fact, I would, I would categorize our site as kind of a mini laquiche. Uh, laquiche, as I've said, is the, the most important site in the region um, during the late bronze and iron II, And I would say our site is. Uh, kind of a third of that in terms of its size, but it has the same periods that we see show up at and So I started, again, working in this Late Bronze Age, uh, this Late Bronze Age layer, uh, at least in terms of the excavation. But uh, during the process, uh, I also participated in in, uh, research that was devoted to making connections between the site uh, and this and its identification with with Libna, as well as the early uh, explorations of the site, uh, which uh, are very important and very um, kind of give this background to why this site was uh, overlooked, uh, at least in terms of the excavations, and that's actually one of the main reasons why they were attracted to the site. Uh, back in the around two thousand, there was a big survey of uh, a survey of the site done by Jerusalem University College, and one of the things that they did, which would be great if we could, is, is burn the entire tell. Uh, so they were able to burn off all of the weeds, and anyone who's participated knows that this is a good idea, because once you do that, it makes it much easier. You don't have to go through that first process of taking away these huge winter weeds, and at a site like this, where you have walls all over the place, uh, being able to use aerial photography, uh, would be really nice because you can see things really pop out. Uh, but the funny thing was, is our site is actually a bull pasture. Uh, so the nearby kibbutz, kibbutz bait near, they said, we're happy to see you excavate the, the site, but please, whatever you do, don't be like those other guys and burn off the entire tail. That's how our bulls uh, uh, feed over the over the winter months. And so uh, we're just hoping that... <laughs> so
0: archaeology has some symbiosis yes. with modern-day culture. There
1: you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and of course, one of the funny things was, is that, it, as it turns out, bulls really like uh, the excavated dirt. They like to roll in it. So we were uh, excavating a Late Bronze Age cultic center uh, compound or temple, which, of course, in Late Bronze Age... Uh, The main deity that you would connect with is Baal, who is personified by riding on a bull. And so the joke was always when, you know, the bulls would roll in, here comes Baal again, and you take your dirt to them and they'd roll in it. So it was a nice uh, connection with the past. Um, But I I would just, you know, kind of in this part by saying, it's just been a great experience. Uh, It's been the main project I've been affiliated with. And the team that is there is great. It's headed by. Uh, professor Itzik Shai of Ariel University, um, and we've had a number of, of other colleagues connected with it including Steve Ortiz in recent years from Lipscomb University. Um, we have a, a great set of area supervisors which would include uh, myself and Aron Tavger and uh, Deborah Casuto and just a, a wonderful team of uh, specialists beneath that that are also working on other aspects such as zooarchaeology, archaeobotany, uh, and it's just been a, a wonderful experience to be a part of this, this great project
0: great yeah, yeah and you it's, it's nice to highlight the team because again we've talked about this in the past that archaeology really is a, a team process uh, what from the beginning of you know planning everything to doing the excavation to even the publication now before we come back to that let's jump back a bit and touch on some of the the kind of early exploration of the site because you mentioned this is something that you've been doing some research on and this is something that I you know find particularly interesting and I think just to, to frame the discussion for some of our listeners listeners right uh, you know Napoleon comes in 1799 and conquers Egypt and then moves throughout the near east and this opens up the near east as many of our listeners probably know for kind of european interest and a reawakening in in ancient things and all of a sudden you have these people coming and starting to explore the so-called Holy Land and one of the first and most important is uh, Edward Robinson uh, along with Eli Smith in the, the early 1800s and then a number of others come after this and so you've gone and looked at some of these early resources particularly focusing on Tel Barnat, uh, and also the, the different names of the site so maybe you can just say a little bit about some of this early exploration you know was this a site that early explorers were drawn to in any way and what are some of the challenges that you found in looking at their, these early accounts and trying to kind of bring everything together um, as you planned for the the modern excavation
1: yeah great question and these are the types of things that I know both of us love and could get lost in the the 19th century world and early 20th century world of these ex- early explorers and so I'd start with I'd start with this is actually one of my Biggest heroes in terms of uh, biblical studies and geography and such, of course, Edward Robinson. But I gotta admit, Edward Robinson missed Tel Bourna. Uh In fact, if you go back and read some of his, um, he came to eight, in 1838 uh, with Eli Smith to uh, what was then Palestine, and he he came to Beit Jibrin which is now known as Beit Kuvrin, uh one of the places that has an amphitheater in Israel and near to the Bell Caves. If you if you've seen Rocky Three. Uh, you've seen where they filmed uh, the part where he has the ridiculous ep- uh, uh, a- uh, bow and arrow that explodes. That's very near there to, to make a modern connection. Uh, but he turned.
0: Rambo 3? I think he might be Rambo 3 with bow and yeah,
1: arrow. Yeah, Rambo 3. Yeah, Rambo 3.
0: Just, you know, we don't want to, you know, mis- disrespect Sylvester Stallone and some of the, the, the stuff out there. So just clarify <laughs> yeah, Okay, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
1: so um, Edward Robinson went right by the site. And he went from Beit Jibreen northward onto Telesafi, didn't comment on it. Uh, he missed one of those, but he still did much more than than anyone else. But a couple years later, um, there's actually a, another scholar, not as well known. His name was Charles William, uh, I think Meredith... Van de Velde. he uh, has got a long name. Uh, he came, and he actually added more details to what Edward Robinson had done in the late 1830s. And he didn't visit the site either, but he said when he passed through uh, the Arab guide that was passing through, he said, look at that site. It's The name of it is either Tel Bournab or Tel Bullnab. Now, that le- that second name, which we can say is B-U-L-N-A-B, in, at least in, in English, uh, is, of course, different than Bornat. And what's really interesting about that name is it has the same consonants as the name Libna. Uh, and so this was a discovery um, that was, let's say this... I found this out a few years ago um, that Vendevelde had visited it and had given a different name, but the connection was not immediately made. That we can we can then see Libna as a kind of uh, a corrupt version in the in the name Bullnab. Now he didn't actually visit the site, but he records it, which is which is very important. And so this becomes what I consider to be probably the the closest we can get to the original name. And if we go back in time to uh, Eusebius, the, the great Christian historian, as well as geographer, and what is my, one of my favorite ancient documents, ancient works, the Onomasticon where he goes and uh, actually gives many of these place names and identifies them using mileage, he indicates that the site of Lobna, uh, which is biblical Libna, is in the same neighborhood as Eleutheropolis, which is at Beit. Gouverine. And so this seems to fit quite nicely. And in fact, uh, and this hasn't even been published yet, so I'll give you the, the ground room uh, floor. Uh, uh, actually, there is a, I was looking at uh, a, a map that includes the name Wadi Abu Laban, uh, which is just actually the the, the, the canyon that is a, a tributary of the Nahal-Guvrin directly across the valley from uh, Tel Borna. And the, and the name Laban is the same basic word as Libna. Both have the connotation of uh, of connecting it with white. So we have Eusebius describing the site of Lobna, which is in the fourth century um, AD. So this would be a Byzantine site. And then we have the Um, the record of Charles Velde from the same area, seeming to preserve the same name. So essentially, we can make a pretty good case that the the name was corrupted in the 19th century. At some point, it became Bornat. But we can connect Vandervelde in 1852 with the name Bullnab to what Eusebius tells us in, in the fourth century. Now, the very first person to actually come to the site wasn't Edward Robinson, as I've said, was actually a French explorer named Victor Guerin. He uh, came to the site in the 1860s. He climbed up to the top, described its walls. Uh, I didn't know when they dated to, but he says that on all four sides of this 70 by 70 meter site, you can see fortification walls, uh, records a few details, and then moves on. Uh, it's from him that we get the first name Tel Uh About uh, two decades after that, we have uh, this is in the 1870s, we have the survey of western Palestine with Claude Condor and Horatio Kitchener of the Palestine Exploration Fund coming up to the site and they gave their own uh, kind of basic information, the same thing Guerin said. Uh, they thought that perhaps our site was a Roman fortress that surrounded Beit Jabrine. Uh, to, 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 it, it may, maybe even in use in the Crusader period. So they were way off uh, that we don't have those, those periods at our site. And it wasn't until the, the modern period moving into the, to the 20th century that we start to see the site become recognized for the archaeology that was there. Uh, and actually, as it turns out, uh, Petrie, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie, we got to say his whole name, uh, he came to the site. And just after his excavations at Tel El-Hesi, where he had essentially um, unlocked the key to using pottery as a uh, as a technique, or at least it was this was known before, but he connected it with the specific strata at Tel El-Hesi, uh, which is a site cl- very close to us and close to where you excavated Kirbet Aray. He then used the pottery at a, a number of tells in the region to suggest these are the time periods that these tells uh, occupy. And one of the sites he went to was Tel Bornat and he essentially made good, pretty good conclusions, not exactly what we found, um, with, with what was there, suggesting that it was occupied primarily during the Old Testament period. Now, they had different terminology. I won't go into the different term- terminology they used. And from there, we have a, a sequence of, uh, of surveyors. Albright would come to the site, uh, we had a, a, another survey that took place, uh, a famous one in the nineteen fifties, with Yohanan Aharoni and Ruth Amiran, who had been excavating at Arad, or would excavate at Arad.
0: And there's this great. And They're two of the best, you know, two of the two of the most famous Israeli um, archaeologists from from that generation.
1: Right, exactly. And the fact that it happens in the fifties tells you that this is one of the first steps they're moving through in the early days of of the state of Israel. And I love that they had they actually took a picture. In front of the walls uh, of of the Iron Age fortress that we can now take pictures of and have the same same wall in the background, and essentially their data was really similar to what we came up with. And there's more. We had uh, there, there was a there was a, a dissertation that was done in the in the 80s um, looking for Levitical cities, uh, and but the but the main one is the one I mentioned earlier by JUC that they they came there in 2000. Uh, to to find And actually, the, that was never published, so we don't know what the survey results were. And so the the thought is, or the kind of the backstory is, everyone knew, kind of knew, a, a, had these these thoughts about who had come to the site, and they all thought it was a great place to excavate. But everyone was worried that it was covered over by. Uh, post-interesting periods, at least according to some archaeologists, Uh, in other words, which would be anything kind of after the Iron Age, anything after the Iron Age, you know, that's, that's the way that's the way that joke goes. Uh, And the problem would be that if you have uh, Hellenistic and Roman remains, they would bury Iron Age remains, which is our core interest. And so luckily, that scared off everyone. Uh, for instance, uh, Ron Tappy, who ended up excavating nearby at Tel Zeit, and he also thought our site was a little bit too big for what he wanted to do. And others came and said, well, let's excavate it. You know, it's got this connection prob- probably with Libna, as argued by Anson Rainey and others. But they just said, no, let's not do it because it's uh, probably got these later periods we'll have to deal with. And so when Joe Uziel and Itzik Shai came to the site in 2009, one of their big uh, ideas was to do a two-prong approach to survey. One would be an intensive survey of the site, taking it field by field, and a survey involves walking around uh, uh, the site and dividing it up in topographic features, picking up uh, pottery, and then at the end washing the pottery and then dating the pottery based upon Typology, so that would be one aspect, and then another one would be to actually do what they call test pits, where you dig a uh, about a 50 centimeter uh, circle, um, and then it, it only uh, you only dig down about 20 centimeters or so, and then you actually sift everything to see if um, that provides a better um, a, a better read on what the survey was. And so they did both of those and it turns out that the site did not have hardly any occupation after the Persian period. So the site, according to the survey, was occupied from the early Bronze Age, you know, from the third millennium BC. It seems to have had middle Bronze Age remains, uh, which would be from about 2000 to 1550 BC. The biggest period, uh, the biggest two periods were actually the Late Bronze Age and the Iron II. And so, those were the main, and it also had some Persian period. Now it had some iron one, which would be again between 1200 and 1000 or so, but not as much. And so essentially the two biggest periods as represented in the survey were the late bronze age, this time of internationalism uh, in, in, uh, in the Mediterranean world, New Kingdom Egypt, and so on, and the iron II, which would be more or less the two biggest periods that we see at a site like Lakeiche, which is is what I mentioned earlier. Now, of course, that was the survey. That was what walking around the site, picking up sherds uh, showed. And so you had to actually ground uh, proof that through excavations. And and, uh, maybe I'll leave it there. But one thing I would add is that one of the really important things is that one particular area of the site, uh, what I mentioned earlier as kind of the lower Western platform, which we would call later Area B1, only seemed to have Late Bronze Age remains. And so that became a, a, a key uh, element to what we were hoping to find out, if that would prove, be proven true in the survey. And if so, that could be really important because, as you know, excavating Earlier periods is often difficult because you have to to excavate through later periods to get there and so that would that gave us the the setting and that's actually kind of where I came into the story in 2010 we began our excavations
0: okay great yeah and you you touch on some um, some good stuff I mean the, the importance of survey can, you know we never want to underestimate and so again for some of our listeners who maybe don't know the ins and outs of, of archaeology this is you know the first step generally that we take because you know, it's it's an easier process than excavating, it doesn't require as much time or as much money or as many resources and so to do a survey, it can actually get, tell you a whole lot about the site and like you said, you were able to identify um, the kind of growth and constriction of the site in a certain sense, knowing that the western plateau was really only late Bronze Age and that later periods and maybe some of the other periods are only uh, in the kind of citadel area just to the east and so this gives you a good sense as an archaeologist of how to plan out what you want to do, what kind of research questions you want to get to and the feasibility of doing those and again nobody wants to have to dig through meters and meters or feet or feet of overburden whether it's actual post interesting material or just you know fill that's been brought in which we know from some sites where that gets you know, that happens you want to get to the stuff that you want to get to and so a survey is one way to really um, kick that all off and help you move into it now let's focus here for a second because you've mentioned the Late Bronze Age a number of times. And, and again, you've, you've highlighted this is a period of internationalism. And this is when you've know, got the Egyptian New Kingdom. You've got the the Hittite Empire. You've got the Middle Assyrian um, Empire all flourishing. You've got the Mycenaean uh, Kingdom going on. You've got everyone kind of in their prime. We know long-distance trade is taking place we're learning probably there's greater connections to the east uh, coming through the, the through our region as well in this time period. What um, just focus a bit more on the late bronze remains. You mentioned there's a cultic area, and what are the kind of materials that you're finding there, and what is it? Um, what kind of light has it shed on our understanding of cult and ritual, or or perhaps even Canaanite uh, religion in that time period?
1: Yeah, good great questions. Uh, I was when I, when I I'll start with this by saying. When I came to it, I was really hoping to excavate Iron Age. Uh, and even while I was excavating Late Bronze Age, I, I wanted to, you know, get back to the Iron Age. And now I really miss my, my Late Bronze Age friends. Uh, but so essentially, our, we got really lucky, uh, and which is, as you know, the case is, all, that's always the case in archaeology when, uh, when you find something new. And so I came in, again, this is 2011, so some 10 years ago, and we opened up with a very small team of like four or five people. A couple of squares hoping to again ground proof what we had found in uh, the survey. And immediately we struck, uh, you know, pun intended, pay dirt. Uh, we, we found uh, Late Bronze Age in a deposit that's something like a foot and a half deep uh, to bedrock and it had nothing on top of it. So it was all probably started in the 14th century, but definitively dated to the 13th century BC, the end of the Late Bronze Age. Uh, we don't have the uh, continuation phase, at least in this area, uh, into the 12th century. So it really represented a, a single uh, part of uh, of the Late Bronze Age. But it wasn't just the layer uh, that we found. Uh, even in those first three squares, a square is a five-by-five-meter uh, excavation area. At least that's what, what we excavate in. We found a uh, cultic uh, area, which included two ritual masks to be worn by uh, a person. In fact, this was really funny. When we first found it, we thought, okay, this has to be something late. And I remember Itzik was shaking his head. Itzik Shy he said, oh, this is Hellenistic. We can't, oh, this is not good. Uh, but it, then it became really clear that what this was was, was late Bronze Age. Uh, and so literally at my very first uh, time as an area supervisor in the first square that we excavated, we found probably what was uh, the best thing I've ever found till now. And uh, ter- so I mean, I was, I, it was, it was, it was just great. And then, um, and then next to that, we found this, um, this courtyard that was uh, all on bedrock, that was absolutely jam-packed, filled with prestige items, uh, cultic finds, many of them imported from Cyprus. Um, and maybe I could just give you an overview. I mean, we had um, we have a, again, it's it's on a bedrock courtyard, but we found two of the most distinctive ones are what's called Cypriot wavy band pitoy. Essentially what these are, are massive jars, which were produced in Cyprus. And then, um, at least according to the um, shipwreck excavations of Uluburun off the coast of Turkey, they were filled with all kinds of um, of items that were that were shipped from Cyprus to the, to the wider Mediterranean world, including especially Cypriot items like um, milk bowls and what's called bilbil juglets, some of which were just for the pottery themselves. Others might have contained items such as the, the bilbil juglets, which may have actually been used to, uh, to trade in opium. Uh, which I am uh, kind of a believer in, although it hasn't necessarily been proven. We found th- these, and what's so so interesting about these... And just a yeah, quick note on the on
0: the Bill Bills, right? For those, um, we, we don't have a picture, but they actually look like the head of a poppy plant. And the the decoration, maybe you could get just a, a short statement on the decoration, then I'll let you get back to what you're saying. Yeah,
1: thanks for jumping in there. In fact, we'll try and put a photo or discussion of, of what these are, because they're very interesting in the description. But essentially what the the theory is is that the shape of the bilbil juglet is a kind of upside down poppy plant. In other words, so to get opium you actually have to to cut into the poppy plant to to get the oil out and then collect it and goes through a chemical process before it becomes opium. And so the idea is is that even the shape of the vessel, the juglet itself, was meant to look like the, the poppy plant and then contained the opium uh, but as far as as far as what as far as these items many of them were actually found stacked inside of the cypriot pitoy which were sunk into this courtyard and so if we imagine how this happened our site is some 35 kilometers inland from the closest port which means that they had to overland carry these uh shipping items that were mostly for for trade uh, along the coast from cyprus come into a port perhaps at jaffa or uh, maybe ashkelon and then bring them 35 kilometers inland to set them in this particular place i mean to take that amount of effort uh to do is it it just shows you that it's it's really significant i mean even in we can think of some of these um you know moving these huge items uh, we often think of the pyramids and that type of thing you do it for a purpose you don't just do it because you um because it it sounds like a good idea and and so we had these at least two of these pitoy which have since been restored filled with uh some local items some uh bilbil juglets uh uh, what's called a tankard so if you think of uh, the name comes from uh the beer stein that you would see in germany uh, but it it looks more or less the same from from cyprus these are actually inside of these uh, pitoy we've since found some bowls that were uh, imported from the Lebanese coast all inside of these uh, large containers, now these were outlining the courtyard, these two big ones, in the center of it though we have a group of of stacked bowls uh, we have a number of of chalices and goblets, and in the very center of this of this uh, courtyard and again, just to give you a, a picture in your head this is we 're talking about something like five by five meters it 's not very big uh we have a stone which is we think perhaps was an offering table of sorts and it had a three-cupped Cypriot votive vessel now i know that's a lot to 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 unpack it's a, it's yeah so essentially it's it, they're they're very small um you can fit everything in, in, in your in your hand um but it was clearly placed there it was so it's imported from Cyprus of course and then in each one of the vessels uh, after doing residue analysis, it became clear that there was a different type of oil in each one of the in each one of the vessels uh, so really cool to find in this context and again we 're talking less than a meter uh, most cases fifty centimeters uh, from topsoil till you get to that but all around it, we had uh, of course the masks we have uh, f- uh, fertility figurines uh, we have a very interesting uh, crater, which is a kind of a large bowl with sides, which has a tree of life, uh, a tree of life background to it. Um, much of uh, of this is, is very, very interesting. And then near it, perhaps the uh, most interesting of all, uh, we found uh, what's probably is a standing stone that has a hole drilled through it, uh, which we've Really debated as to to what it is, so you have a courtyard which is to the west and to the east of that, you have this big rectangular something like a meter and a half uh, long by about eighty centimeters or so tall and it 's set up and it 's made from chalk, which for those of you who don 't know in the region, this is one of the the main distinctive features. You have the building stone which is called Nari, which sits on top of the uh, the, the stone that's in the Shvela, and then beneath that you have this really chalky material that's called Eocene, for, for those real who are interested in the geology. Uh, but it's really useless for, for building material, and they actually drilled a symmetrical hole through the center. And we, for a long time, wondered, okay, what is this? What is this? And so finally, and we're, we're kind of coming around to the idea that perhaps this is an anchor that it's meant to be a standing stone in the shape of an anchor. And if that's the case, we can perhaps make some larger connections. Now we're hesitant to do it, that, that you know, it doesn't say welcome to the temple of the deity, but we do know of Phoenician, uh, as well as earlier uh, period in, in terms of the Late Bronze Age, where we have uh, sacred centers in places like Sidon and, and even uh, throughout where we, where we find these. And often the connection is is to a goddess. And so our kind of tentative suggestion is to connect this with a fertility goddess. The goddess who would be known from the uh, region would be Asherah, at least according to the biblical pronunciation of the name. In Ugarit, which is dated exactly to this time period, you have the name Atarat uh which you know it has to do with you know the changing of the, of the consonants uh, but in any case the thing that's attached to her name is just she who treads upon the sea and so perhaps there is this connection that can be made now we won't say this with certainty but we do have this anchor we do have a number of fertility uh figurines uh including one um that's a local one called the Revedim plaque figurines where we actually have a lady with, uh, with her hair coming down and on her thighs, at least to, to the ones that have been found, two um, ibex, or I should say two trees of life feeding on this, which which some have suggested is connected with Asherah. So we don't have, let's say, the, the smoking gun, but it does seem that um, if we were to identify a particular deity that was worshiped there, it could be connected with, um, with Asherah, although again, we can't say that with absolute certainty. And again, in this area, we're talking about, we excavated some 23 squares, uh, a huge excavation area.
0: And, and the square is about five meters by five meters yeah, in general. Five by
1: mm-hmm. five. And the two or three squares that we started off the excavation season ended up being by far and away the most important, the best preserved, and have produced just an enormous amount of publications out of those two or three squares that we actually excavated. Now... Um, as far as ongoing excavations for this area, um, my colleague, Marcella Barbosa, is excavating to the south, and it, we, we always looked for the southern wall. We found the western wall, we found the northern wall, we have what we think is the eastern wall, and so it's possible we've now begun to find the southern wall, and we'll see in future seasons, perhaps even this summer, if we find more of this construction and, and perhaps more of the, the context. But essentially what we have is a storage area and then this main area that is absolutely filled with cultic and prestige items um, that is very, very interesting. So it was, it's it been a, a great experience over the years to, to, to take part in that and given made the late Bronze Age have a special place in my heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great. Well, that's that's just fascinating, and um, I have read up on some of your your publications on this. And you know, when you see this this um, standing stone, the, the kind of circular one with the hole in it, I mean, it looks like a big donut. And so, but you're saying it's not about donuts, then, right? So it's, it's you know, we want to make sure that nobody thinks it's about donuts. It's you know, but it's it's interesting though how you reconstruct and pull all the the evidence together to try and figure out a little bit about Canaanite religion, because as you mentioned, yeah, there are a number of other sites where you have these anchors that are featured prominently and you know, this was actually going to be a question I was going to raise to you is, is could this be an anchor actually? Uh, I mean it looks like that particularly with the hole drilled through and so you've you've pulled together all the different evidence and you know, like you mentioned in archaeology we very seldom ever have a smoking gun but you as we gain more and more data and more information, we're able to make these connections in, in new and interesting ways. And, uh, you know, I'll be interested to hear more as you guys excavate more of this and as you process this material, um, if you guys continue along this same line of thinking, which I think just from hearing it now makes a lot of sense to me, at least. Yeah,
1: can I, can I add one other thing? Um, if, th- if you think about the, the connections with Cyprus, which are obvious, we have just a, a huge amount of imported stuff from Cyprus, which isn't, um, let's say... Cypriot imports aren't unique to the period. I mean, they're, they're all over the place in the late bronze age, but to have them in as high a quantity as we do in the variety that we do, and especially these massive pitoy, which would take the tractors of the ancient world to move, uh, bulls and at least donkeys, um, tells you that it's connected in a way to Cyprus uh, we've even toyed around with the idea that maybe this, you know, the, the just, it's, it's, it's a group of traders that connect there, uh, even in some ways has more of the variety of things than a place like Lakeish does, at least in these big uh, pitoy. But the other thing I was going to say about the anchor, if it is an anchor, it isn't reused. In other words, they're not bringing the anchor from the sea, they're bringing the idea of the anchor Fashioning it on site and connecting it with the with the finds that they have, which in itself is even more interesting because it shows um, that they have a familiarity with the maritime network and the the, the deities associated with it. Uh, so in any case, it's a um, we wish we had more to go off of as far as texts go, but there's a lot here that is of, of real interest.
0: Yeah, well, and it really touches on the idea of identity and "quote unquote" ethnicity, and and how do you identify some of these things in the archaeological record? Because, yeah, you've got this large assemblage of cypriot material that is a bit atypical for most of the sites in the region, but when you look at the location, you you say, "Oh, well, it's a Canaanite site." Well, who, who's actually there? I mean, and what is the influence of ideas? Who, who are the people that are coming and going? Why this location in particular for this this uh, shrine where you have a great Cypriot influence. I mean, you can imagine later on, I mean, uh, Mari Shah Begu- El Eutheropolis, This is a, kind of a crossroads location, and you're not too far from it. And so perhaps we should extend that back into the late Bronze as well, and that's what draws some of this intercultural, or I should say internationalism, to this specific location. So it'll be really interesting, um, as I said, to, to see what you guys continue to, to find here. Now let's switch from the late Bronze Age for uh, a bit, and let's jump into the Iron Age because we we just keep talking about the late Bronze Age, but we we do need to talk a little bit about the Iron Age, uh, and and we'll have to limit that a little bit as it is at this moment. But um, tell us a little bit so. so you say that you have some Iron Age I material, and then you also have this really interesting early Iron Age IIa material. So before you even get to the fortress, this, tell me a little bit about some of this, because this is this is significant, I think, for the broader region, for, again, the chronology, even connections to uh, Kirbet Arai and other sites. The fact that you're starting to get some of this, this contemporary material uh, with Kiribati Kayafah, is really important. So let's just dr- uh, draw that out a little bit before we look at the, the kind of citadel fortress from later on.
1: Right. So just in terms of where the Iron Age stuff is, the Iron Age stuff is entirely connected with the upper tell. And again, the, that's not the best terminology. It's, it's the main tell itself where we have the Iron Age, and it's enclosed by the fortress. So if you visit the site, you're climbing up and you're standing on top of the casemate fortress casemate is a double-walled structure very common uh, particularly in the iron two to judah the kingdom of judah and the kingdom of israel um, as far as the early stuff goes uh, we've found uh, uh, some sherds uh, i won't say a handful maybe a few handfuls of iron one uh, sherds um, and especially a few that we can connect with uh, the philistines so uh, some bichrome, maybe some debased. I, I don't think we have monochrome, but these were found not in a good context. So we're talking about finding them in the context of of a, of a later period. Um, but we do have a considerable layer that seems to be consistent with the early Iron 2 a uh, that can be connected with the same uh, pottery horizon as Kirbet-Kiafa, which
0: which again is yeah late 11th century early 10th century right yeah. and
1: so the pottery that we found um in, in a destruction layer um and this this area is to the west of the of the fortifications i mean i'm talking about directly west of the fortifications um and the 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 area supervisor my good friend Aharon Tovgar, who we both know well um uh, he he's the one in charge of this and they've exposed dozens of Complete vessels, thick layers of ash. Probably, uh, as you mentioned at Kyrberg or Rai, probably a couple stories of, of of excavations on top of one another. And we're continuing to excavate uh, excavate this. And so the date of that is really important. Uh, we're not sure exactly when it dates to as of yet. We've had C fourteen. Uh, there's the question of is it date to the uh, to the 10th century, perhaps even a little later. It's kind of a big debate at this point um, in terms of the 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 villains, if you will, or the conquerors, however you want to put it. Uh, one of the big ones in, the, in this time frame could be Shishak, who comes to the vicinity uh, in, in about 925 BC, brags about it on Karnak, and there are a wave of destructions that can be connected with that. So that's one of the possibilities. But we're not ready yet to be able to say when exactly it dates to. But in terms of the pottery, it definitely seems to fit with what was found at Kiafa, And this opens up a whole other discussion because Kiafa was dated actually earlier. And they don't have a, a widespread destruction there. Um, and, and we're not sure we do either. We have it only in a couple squares, but it's very intense with fiery destruction. And so the question is, uh, how do these uh, these types of of, of, of ceramic layers and, and types match up? Are we looking at two parts of the same period? Are we looking at something identical? And also from what you guys have at Curator is it the same destruction that we have? And these are all very important discussions to have. And as we mentioned, uh, not only do we have the technique of, of radiocarbon using C14, but just as you guys and we have also begun to use this um, this, this paleomagnetism, archaeopaleomagnetism. Uh, <laughs> it goes by a couple different names. But essentially trying to record what the earth's magnetic field looked like at that particular time is another way that we're trying to date this and so this is very much in process at this moment and one of the things that we hope to do last summer and hope to do this summer is to continue to expose more of this and get closer to that original date so in terms of the iron one uh, not a lot but definitely some people around not found in excavations as of yet Later than that, uh, perhaps in the 11th, uh, for sure, in the 10th century, um, and continuing into the 9th, we have an iron 2a layer. Again, uh, we divide the iron 2a into two main periods, 10th century, early iron 2a, late century, uh, uh, excuse me, late uh, iron 2a, 9th century. Uh, we have that period, but the, the fortification itself, uh, still we haven't reached the inside floor of the fortifications. So we've excavated on the outside. Now, what? now, Chris, explain to me why is that important? <laughs> yes. So th- this is this is a very important one for uh, stratigraphy. You know, the, the the art of excavating and dating things. So what we've been able to do is is excavate the outer face of the fortifications to where now we believe we're below the foundations, um, which seems to indicate that the fortification was cutting into an earlier layer. In other words. The people who built the fortification built it on top of something that was already destroyed, which would be, again, this this maybe 10th century destruction that we have. But again, we don't know what exactly it dates to. But in actually, to, in order to date a fortification, or really any building, you need to have the interior of, of it built. Because then you can see the floors as they joined or abutted Uh, the wall. And then you can actually excavate below that, which provides the date of, uh, on both sides of of, of the excavation the beginning and then after. And so that's one of the things that we're really hoping to do, and we actually hope to do that in a couple different areas. This one, uh, which is called Area B2, is a fun, fun area. Uh, It looks beautiful on aerials because it's just a 10 meter wide section. Uh, we like to call it the Sundage. You know, this is the the French term um, that that goes from area B one, the late Bronze Age layer in the west, and then it's meant to go all the way down to bedrock uh, in these and uh, these ten meters, all the way up to the top of the site where we have the casemate fortifications. And so that's the goal of it. Uh, and we found we've gotten low on a lot of these places, but not on the interior yet. Now, if we go inside the wall, it's very clear that the casemate wall was in use in different ways from the 7th century uh, on the most recent, all the way through the ninth century. In other words, probably the fortification was built in the ninth century, although there's still the potential that it's a little bit earlier, but most likely in the late Iron IIa in the ninth century. It, it reaches its apex or its, its, its uh, pinnacle, During the 8th century BC, which would be very fitting with what we know of the Shephelah and really the kingdom of Judah in general, we're talking about, in terms of biblical characters, two big ones, King uh, Azariah or Uzziah, who's mentioned in Chronicles and Kings as expanding, and even in the case of Chronicles, uh, uh, tearing down the wall of Gath, um, where this expansion seems to happen in the 8th century, probably, at least in some ways, aided by the destruction of Gath, which happened uh, a generation earlier, probably around 810 BC or so, maybe a little bit earlier, by Hazael of Aram Damascus, uh, something mentioned in the, the book of Kings, 2 Kings 12 verse 17. And so as Gath gets wiped off the map, uh, if we're thinking of a risk board, uh, Judah is able to expand uh, westward, and even actually we think that Gath during this period became a Judahite site. In fact, this is mentioned in a Assyrian inscription, the so-called letter to the God. And so this entire region reaches its its pinnacle in the eighth century. But as uh, we all know, at least those of us in the region, all of that uh, comes crashing down uh, thanks to our friend Sennacherib, uh, who comes in the year 701 BC uh, and claims to have destroyed 46 cities. And we must admit, uh, that this is not an exaggeration, um, that he, we're, we're likely one of those sites that he destroys. Uh, and so even though our site reaches its pinnacle in the 8th century, one of the f- funny things is, is clearly something happens. The site uh, changes in terms of its uh, wealth, in terms of its prominence, in terms of the buildings. We have reconstruction. We don't have that thick burn layer that you would come to expect with a of destruction, like especially at Lachish uh, or other places. Uh, but something definitely happened between the 8th and the 7th century. Now, this is particularly interesting to to us as people interested in the biblical world because the Bible is really clear on what happens when Sennacherib's in the region. Sennacherib is fighting with Lachish. In fact, he would make this really uh, obvious in his uh, Lachish reliefs in his palace in Nineveh, which are uh, unbelievable. And anyone who goes to the British Museum should go and look at those. And he sends his uh, three officials, one of which is called the Rab Sheikah, uh, the, the chief, uh, the, you know, kind of the chief of his, his spokesman, sends him to Jerusalem where Hezekiah is uh, holed up. And he, uh, Hezekiah sends his officials, one of which is a guy named Shevna, and they meet on the wall of Jerusalem and they discuss terms, and it's just unbelievably cool trash talk back and forth between the Rabshakeh and these three officials. And they say, "Whatever you do, don't talk in Hebrew. Let's talk in the you know in the international language." And they have this back and forth. Well, anyways, we'll leave that for some other time. But the Rabshakeh then comes back to join up with uh, with Sennacherib. And it says in Second uh, Kings that the king Second Kings uh, eighteen that the king of Second uh, Kings eighteen and nineteen that the king of, of Assyria was no longer fighting at Lachish, but he found him at Libna. and this seems to be the indication that they are now surrounding this new site in the vicinity of Lachish, which we believe is located at Tel Borna, which would actually be kind of an interesting thing as well, because uh, if we think of the Book of Joshua which is, of course, reflective, perhaps, of of an earlier period. Uh, Lachish and Libna are also fought uh, by Joshua in the same sequence. They fight Lachish, and then they go to Libna. Uh, So it just fits in with this kind of geographical type of of conquest. But as I mentioned, we don't have a burn layer uh, of Sennacherib or the 701 destruction, but something definitely did happen on site to, 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 to alter it. And may I say just a couple other words about that. In the last two seasons of excavation, I've shifted from excavating in the uh, Late Bronze Age layer to actually looking for the gate. I always wanted to excavate an Iron Age gate. And uh, we think we have one, which dates to the 8th and the 7th century uh, BC. And one of the cool realizations uh, after we had exposed part of it and tried to make sense of, of how these towers would have worked and this channel that come through. And once I realized, you know, I'm kind of standing on a tower and I kind of looked out to uh, the south, which was towards the quiche. And I just imagined like, wow, like the defenders of Libna, if we're right about the identification and we're right about the stratigraphy, were likely standing on this tower as the Assyrians approached Jerusalem. Uh, And the fact that this site is really not all that well defended and not that big, maybe they just said, you know, you destroyed 40 some odd other cities, maybe we'll just give you the key to town and let you come in and and, and take the place. Uh, But it was just really this kind of amazing moment of, yeah, you're connecting it with, I don't want to go too Bible and spade type thing, but you're connecting a real historical source, which we have uh, Sennacherib's prism and, and all these different additions, and of course the Lachish relief, and you're looking out to the same landscape that Sennacherib saw, that the defenders of Libna would have seen, uh, and even the ancestors of those defenders, because we have uh, Josiah's wife, Hamutal, uh, from the city of Libna, uh, looking out and, and imagining the scene, and as it turns out, uh, one of the interesting things about the, the site is that in that same uh, valley, the, the Nuhal-Gavrin, was found one of the few uh, one of the few Iron Age uh, cuneiform tablets. Uh, what's called the Lamashtu plaque. And so the suggestion going back now some 30 years was that perhaps some Assyrian soldier was in the vicinity and dropped it. Uh, And so perhaps that's even another uh, thing that we could add to this. And so in any case, that's just been just a a really great experience to always connect back with these historical sources, the Bible included, to understand. Um, And so we're continuing in terms of the excavation to expose more of the gate. Perhaps we have another gate below this that we're hoping uh, to, to uncover, which would date to the earliest phase of the fortress. We're also excavating in a couple of other places in the fortress, one on the east side, which has got some really nice material um, from, the, from the later periods in the 7th century, which would be connected with the time frame of Josiah and Hamutal. And then the main excavation area is actually in the center of the site, where we're going down in a, in a very broad way, where we have a, a probably the main Building within the fortress from the Iron Age, led by uh, Debbie Casuto, uh, and we're continuing again to, to, to move from the seventh to the eighth to the ninth, and maybe to the tenth, and we'll see what's below there. And so the goal is to get the entire sequence of the history of the site in, in different areas. So that kind of gives you a, an, a broad overview of the uh, of the Tilburn archaeological project. And of course, uh, you're welcome to. Uh, To follow us, we have a website, telburna.wordpress.com, and we try every day or every other day to update the new finds. And so we'll be in the field this summer, uh, COVID willing, uh, and uh, we'd hope for you to to follow us. And if you would like to to join an excavation project, uh, we'd be more than happy to have you.
0: Great, Chris. Yeah, Um, if anyone listening has the opportunity, I mean, going on an excavation is... Uh, is fantastic I think it's, it's really an opportunity that that people tend to love and so since if you are going to be in the field yeah take up this coverage because this site is so interesting so fascinating so really thanks for for laying it all out and, and giving us a good sense of what what you have there particularly at a site that um, as you I believe you mentioned you know isn't isn't all that big and so you really jammed a lot <laughs> into this one site here uh, and there's a lot happening and there's a lot of potential as well uh, I know you guys are doing a lot of other studies as well bringing in various scientific scientific methods, analyzing the soil, doing um, other types of studies as well, and unfortunately we just don't have time right now to talk about that, but we can come back and maybe touch on some of that at another point, and we'll also come back to this issue of Libna, and is this really Libna? And I want to hear more from you about some of the specific uh, arguments for this, because there are a number of other sites that have been proposed as Libna, and it's one of the great kind of unsolved historical geographical riddles that still still remains if, if you know if we can nail down libna it seems like there'd be this this new new era of historical geography coming in so we look forward to to having that discussion in a, in a future session and chris i just want to thank you for your time this was fantastic um and again uh we are on script the biblical world so uh continue following us and we'll we'll have some more material for you soon thanks You've been
1: listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.